When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you love the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. If you feel there's more to life than iPhones and iPads and mindless consumerism, if you're open to receiving information in all forms in any number of ways, if organized religion, organized political movements, and any kind of collectivism doesn't just quite cut it for you, if you engage in critical thinking, if you think for yourself, if you have peace and love in your heart and Jack Daniels in your bloodstream, if you believe that seriousness is a disease, if you're curious, then come, let us go on a journey together as we explore the outer limits of inner truth. Welcome to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth radio show. OuterLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Tonight, we have a very special show. We're going to focus on the life of an individual considered to be one of the greatest stand-up comedians of all time, Mr. Sam Kinison. He was a former preacher. He decided to charge the stage and make people laugh. Sam's shows sold out like rock concerts, and he worked with Motley Crue, Guns N' Roses, Ozzy Osbourne. They all appeared in Sam's music videos. He was one of those popular guests on every major late-night television show, and movie studios regularly fought over him. Sam was also friends with and earned the highest accolades from other legends of comedy, such as Jim Carrey, Rodney Dangerfield, George Carlin, Robin Williams, and Bill Hicks. Sam was also close friends with Howard Stern, another comedy and broadcasting legend. I chose to focus on Sam Kinison because I felt that his incredible passion, risk-taking, and fearless stances against everyone in society's sacred cows make him a life deserving worth to be examined. Sam is a legend, and we had the honor of speaking with his brother, Bill Kinison, but before we start that interview and kick off tonight's show, here is one of Sam's greatest bits, and it's on World Hunger. And you're trying to help. But like I said, I'm just trying to help. I'm trying to just do whatever I can for people. Like the World Hunger thing, the USA for Africa. That's, isn't that great? You guys hear the song? Nice song, isn't it? Beautiful. I'm, uh, I'm like anybody else on the planet. I'm very moved by world hunger. I see the same commercials. Those little kids starving and very depressed. And uh, you know, I watch these things on TV and I see those commercials and I look at it and I go, God, how cruel, you know. To see a little kid out there and I go, fuck, you know, I know the, uh, the film crew could give this kid a sandwich. <laughs> you know the kid's not out there, uh, you know, filming a letter from home with a Betamax, huh? You know, there's a director five feet away going, Don't feed him yet! Get that sandwich out of here! It doesn't work unless he looks hungry! <laughs> but I'm not trying to make fun of world hunger. Matter of fact, I think I have the answer. Because I spend a lot of time working it out. And uh, if you want to stop world hunger, stop sending them food. Don't send these people another bite, folks. You want to send them something? You want to help? Send them U-Hauls. Send them U-Hauls, some luggage. Send them a guy out there that goes, Hey! You know, we've been driving out here every day with your food for like the last, uh, I don't know, 30, 40 years. And we were driving out here a day across the desert, and it occurred to us there wouldn't be world hunger if you people would live where the food is! <laughs>
be a hundred years from now, huh? It's gonna be sad! We welcome to the program tonight, Mr. Bill Kinnison, Sam Kinnison's brother and manager. For millions of people around the world who appreciated Sam's work, a substantial amount of credit must be given to Bill, who truly was and truly is to this day his brother's keeper. It is a great honor to have you on the program today, Bill. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you, Ryan, and looking forward to it, and uh, let's have a good time. Yes. So... On your brother's headstone, it says, in another time, in another place, he would have been called prophet. What time and place do you think Sam would have been called a prophet in? Well, I think I think Sam was probably a little ahead of himself, well, quite a bit ahead of himself. You uh, listen to his comedy uh, today, and he's been gone uh, 22 years, and it's it's still relevant. Uh, not only you know in relationships, but even you know even the political. Uh, aspects that he would uh, Touch would talk about and uh, I just uh, I, I think he was ahead of his time I mean he ushered in a a whole new brand of of comedy and uh, so that's the reason we put it on the hit song <laughs> do you think that he would have appreciated the type of comedy these days the way it's very um, I don't know like it's very politically correct uh, do you think he would have stood out, or what do you think he would have thought of the comedians of today? Um, I think I think he would have uh, he would have looked at it like he did back then. Sam was uh, uh, he was one of a kind. I mean, you really couldn't you couldn't program somebody to do it like Sam did. First, Sam never ever wrote a routine. I don't everything that he did was was off the top of his head and and immediate and that was that was the uh oh genius aspect i guess if you want to call it of his comedy is that uh, we did 280 shows a year and there was never two shows that were alike which made it made it very interesting for me but uh you know here here comes on guy where I, i'll never forget he's on johnny carson one time and uh Carson was talking about, uh, you know, how tough is it for a comedian, you know, to, to put together an act and then uh, goes out and does a tour and they've got to take six months off and write another act. And uh, Sam said, I, I've never understood that. So, <laughs> man, you know, I was a preacher. We had to have a new act every night. So I've never understood these guys that take six months to get an act together. And then after they do a tour, they got to come back and do a whole new act. And he really did look at it like that. I remember one time he told me he didn't understand writers talking about being brain dead. He said, I, how do you run out? He said, it's, just, it's continual. And to him, it was. He seemed to have a lot going on in his life. And I want to take it back to um, part of your book. By the way, um, Bill Kinison is author of this really phenomenal book. It's called Brother Sam, The Short Spectacular Life of Sam Kinison. And I highly recommend that anyone who has a passionate love for comedy and, and Sam to, to pick it up. It's just absolutely great. It's a, it's a great, great read. And you talked about that when Sam was a young child, he was hit by a truck and it apparently it damaged his brain by 30%. Yet afterwards, apparently 
that point going forward, he became very hyperactive, and he his personality changed. So how much different do you think Sam's life would have been if he never had gotten hit by that truck? Oh, he'd probably, uh, he'd probably be a minister. Really? That's what he did for seven years, and we were kind of raised that way. And Because uh, uh, the accident totally, like you said, it totally changed his personality, and uh, which ended up being, you know, the strength he had as a comedian. So who knows, man? We in Fury, Illinois. We, he may, he may have been, <laughs> end up working at Caterpillar or... He could have, been, could have been an actual preacher. And uh, I love the, in your book, too, you're saying that uh, he was preaching between 17 and 24. You all were. I mean, you, what, you guys came from an entire family of, of preachers. Your father was one, and were all four of your brothers preachers? Well, all three of your yeah, brothers preachers? Yeah, at one time or another, yeah. Okay, now we Some see- of us, uh, the three, three out of the four of us did it pretty extensively. I mean, Sam uh, did it for seven years. I did it for roughly 17 years. And uh, our older brother, he uh, passed away a couple of years ago, but he did. He he was still preaching when when he passed away. Our youngest brother Kevin didn't do it for a very long time, and, and ended up being uh, you know a model and things like that. Before he, before he was killed. Now, just curious, what are the what are the requirements to be a distinctive preacher? What do you what are the requirements? What do you need? Do you need passion? When what are you preaching from? I mean, what are you what are your, some of your credentials that you need to incorporate into what your style is? Well, sadly enough, uh, it takes twenty-five bucks. You can have you can have a uh, minister's license. I mean, we didn't look at it that way. We went to Bible college and uh, uh, you know did all that kind of stuff. But uh, really, there is no credentials, which which always bothered me. I mean, here you have preachers that uh, are dealing with people's lives and counsel them and then everything else, and we were Pentecostal, which on the social ladder of Christianity, that's like a, a rung of a, just above a snake handler. I mean, we're very emotional people. And uh, But I've seen preachers that uh, uneducated. A lot of times I've seen preachers illiterate. Wow. And as a child and as a teenager growing up, Sam, along with me, I mean, we used to, you know, we used to, uh, I don't want to say ridicule them, but we'd make fun of them because it was, it was ridiculous. Here you got guys that... Uh, totally unqualified that are, are directing people's lives. So sad thing about Pentecostal preachers is, uh, you know, there really isn't any qualifications they have to have. I mean, if they're sincere and committed to what they're doing, they'll do it. But, I mean, vast majority, there is none. They just got up and started preaching. The thing, and I, in your book, you mentioned that Sam was preaching from the age of 17 to 24, and you listen to some of these sermons that he did and you know, you could tell, you could feel the energy, you could feel his passion, you could feel his anger, but yet you revealed that he had no stage presence and he was not successful in making money from preaching. And why did you, did you feel this was so? Uh, well, I think that, that, uh, and, and it wasn't just me thinking, he, he really didn't have much stage presence because he felt like preaching was all, everything was about giving out information and, you know, my brother and I, uh, my older brother Richard and I had, uh, we were already in the ministry for uh, for so probably either three, four, five years before Sam got in the ministry. And uh, and to, uh, to, you know, to go through all that and to, and to deal with that, 
he just he could not get that that preaching was entertainment. And yeah. I tried to explain to him over and over, you know, if you're going to be a successful preacher, you have to preach in an entertaining style. And he just didn't he just, he couldn't grasp that. That to him that was not that's not the way it should be. It's a matter of getting up and giving information. And uh, and ironically, you know, his strength in comedy was stage presence. Yeah, it's and it, not the ministry. It was pretty interesting. And when he decided to go after his dreams, he told you that he wants to do stand-up comedy. He wants to make a shot at it. How did his aspirations to become a comedy to to go after this great dream um, feed off of you, motivate you, and how do you think that your strengths played off each other and helped each other develop and go after your dreams together? Well, I was, uh, our older brother was born uh, mentally handicapped and uh, legally blind and then miraculously uh, recovered or got healed when he was 13. But I was like the older child. Hmm. Our parents got a divorce when uh, Sam and my youngest brother, Kevin, were, were very young. And uh, so I basically... Uh, raised them, and our relation, my relationship with my brothers really wasn't like a brother's relationship. It was more of a father-son. So when you talk about, uh, you know, Sam and I feeding off of each other, uh, I, uh, you know, I did everything I could when he was struggling, especially <clears throat> to uh, support him financially, uh, emotionally, and and he always looked at me to make whatever business decisions. Uh, that had to be made. And so we were actually a pretty good fit. And then he would joke about how he was up all night and and uh, I'd be up all day. And he'd say, oh, man, that's a great team. That's a great team, man. We're always on. <laughs> I'd go, yeah, that would be nice if he was on a little more in the daytime. But uh, that's just, uh, just the way it was. All right. And Sam, like to, if you people listen to Sam's acts, he – likes to talk frequently about how women just would rip his heart out and they would just break his heart. And I was wondering what percentage of his rage do you feel was attributed to, uh, his heartbreak with women? Uh, probably, probably all of it. Really? Uh, Sam's, uh, Sam's luck with women wasn't, you know, wasn't real good. Yeah. Uh, you know, growing up, uh, he was, he wasn't fat. He was husky. But he really wasn't overweight, but he just, uh, you know, it just his luck with women just wasn't good. You know, he he fell he fell in love very easily. I mean, he married his first wife after knowing her just uh, three weeks, a uh, few weeks, and uh, and that's pretty much you know what he would do is, is he you know he would fall for some woman, he fall hard, and uh, they end up. You know, breaking his heart, not totally their fault. I mean, <laughs> Sam's lifestyle was, was pretty tough. And, uh, and you, got, you know, you have to understand with Sam that uh, when, when I, I really thought, I really, let me put it this way, I really thought I'd be taking care of Sam my whole life. He just, uh, this was a guy who never had a job. Uh, he never knew what it was to, to get a paycheck. Uh, on a you know on a regular kind of a job, he has two brothers that are extremely successful and very young in the ministry. That makes it very difficult for him because now he's got to you know he's got to follow two brothers that uh, that really made their mark 
in preaching and everything. So until Sam got into comedy, uh, he didn't, I can't think of one thing he was ever successful at. Wow. He wasn't a successful athlete. He, uh, like I said, he never, ever had a job. Uh, usually he was looking for the easy way out. And uh, But when he got into comedy, and I first time I seen him, he'd been doing comedy about six weeks down in Houston, Texas. And uh, I knew from the first time I seen him, he was gonna be and good. I actually told my wife that, uh, I said, you know, because she, like I said, we supported him. And uh, and I remember her calling me and going, well, how'd it go? You know, thinking, well, this is another, you know, another one of Sam's things. And I told her then, I said, I'm no comedy expert, but uh, he's going to end up being one of the biggest stand-up comedians of all time. I don't know how long it's going to take him because he's not very disciplined. But uh, that was the first time I seen Sam. Uh, doing anything successful, and that's including, uh, you know, preaching and everything else. What, was it? Was it the way his presence? Was it the stage presence? Was it the way the audience was reacting? Did we? What did you see at that moment that uh, made you kind of like sort of gut feeling that you? Well, for the for the first time, I seen I seen Sam get you know be able to take an audience and and uh, and, and you know and and make them laugh. I mean, he was always, he's always off the wall. And he was, and he was always off the wall, but uh, to see him in a successful, you know, area, and it was just natural for him. Like I said, Sam never wrote a routine. It was a matter of getting up and whatever was going on, either in the world or, or personally, uh, he had this ability to make it funny, and he had it from the very beginning. Even though when he started out, he's a prop comedian. He wasn't. He didn't end up like he, like he. Uh, he didn't start out like he ended up. Now, what about his albums that he recorded? He had four. Didn't he have three or four major albums. Was he was he doing those on the fly too, or did he actually prepare some material prior hand? Well, what we did with the uh, the way that we did the albums, and you have to understand that that uh, there were certain uh, routines, if you call them that. There were certain routines that Sam would would do to let me know where he was at, to let me know how close we were to getting, you know, to the end or whatever. But I'd say probably 80, 80% of his shows were strictly off, off the cuff. Now, when it came to the albums, what we did there is that we would do, oh, on an average of four shows, and, uh, and then we just we put the four shows uh, together to make the album. So yeah, it was. You know, we knew we knew certain things that he was going to do, but again, probably half of it, you know, we didn't. And it was just he just, and that's how we did the albums. That's to be honest with you, that's how we did his specials. None of the specials, which isn't unusual by the way in this business, but none of the specials, except for a band, was one show. It was all series of shows. Those were usually, yeah, those were like two or three shows that we. You know, we filmed and then edited together. Right. And uh, most people experiment with drugs and alcohol in their lives, and we often hear that um, you know some of these wilder experiments, you know, they happen during the teenage years. But yet Sam started, uh, I guess he discovered drugs and alcohol at age 25. And I wanted to ask you, why do you think he started so late, and how did drugs and alcohol change his career motivations, as well as his relationship with family, friends, and uh, other people he worked with? Well, the reason... Uh 
And when you say he didn't do drugs or alcohol until he was 25, he never had a drink wow. until he was 25. Uh, the reason was we was raised, you know, we was raised very, uh, very God conscious, and raised, we lived in a church. We were we didn't just raised in a church. We actually lived in a church and uh, grew up there. So I mean, uh, you know, if we we couldn't say gosh or darn or whatever, if we did, you know, we got smacked in the mouth by our, my mother usually because that was cussing. We definitely didn't drink or smoke or do any drugs. But once Sam got out of the ministry and got into comedy, he had uh, he had an addicted personality. And when I say that, uh, Sam couldn't do anything, you know, or he wouldn't. He didn't do anything in uh, mediocrity or or uh, just a little bit. If he did something, he he had to go 100%. So uh, as an example, uh, at one time he had like like 5,000 albums. He you know, couldn't pay rent, but he he's got like 5,000 albums. And the reason was is that you and I, if we hear a song we like or or whatever, we go buy the album. You know, Sam would have to buy every album that that artist had made. Wow. <laughs> well, now he gets out of the ministry. For the first time, he's got this this freedom to do whatever he wanted to do. And I'll never, I, I don't know how many times he would remind me when I go do it. Yeah, you need to back off here. And you go, hey, brother, we're not in church now. And uh, so you put that together with an addictive personality, and, uh, you know, that's usually a pretty good recipe for disaster. And uh, when he got, you know, when he got into uh, Coke, which was his drug of choice and and, uh, and alcohol, uh, there again, it wasn't something that he could do a little bit of like a normal person. No, he, you know, he's got to be the uh, party monster and, and it affected, uh, probably every relationship in his life with everyone. Uh, not counting, you know, his business. Uh, you know, the good thing was that he had a brother and, and different ones in the business would tell him, man, you know, it's a good thing you got a brother that's, that's managing you because, uh, you know, the rest of these guys aren't going to worry about you personally. And, uh, and I tried, you know, I tried to do the best I could to kind of corral him and, and slow him down. It just wasn't, it wasn't possible. I mean, that, that was Sam's makeup until got near the end. And then, the, you know, after he hit bottom, That's what he kind of the last year and a half of his life, he basically cleaned up and, and got his act together. And, uh, I just, and, but it was, um, that was his personality and that it, it affected every part of his life. I thought it was amazing that you used to talk in your well, you mentioned your book that it didn't matter what condition he was as long as he got on stage. And I think the only uh, time I remember reading your book that he where it didn't work for him was when he did that uh, experience in Vegas where he did the three shows and he did the one at New Year's Eve where he came out and uh, that was I guess there was a real uh, one where he couldn't keep it together. But the other two shows he was okay. So how do you think Sam's comedy? would have been different had he had some type of moderation with drugs and alcohol. And when he was sober, how distinctively, how, how different was his comedy? What, what was different about it when, uh, we, when he was sober? Well, the, uh, all the partying made it, uh, made it difficult to, uh, to convince him he needed to make a change. Uh, he had a, a constitution, man, that I guess was as big as the arenas we were playing because, 
he could be up two or three days with no sleep. And if I could get him on stage, uh, he'd give them a great show. It, you know, it, it might take him three or four minutes to, you know, to click in. But then once he did, the adrenaline and everything else, he, he'd give them a great show. So it made it tough for me to go, you know, Sam, you know, look what you're doing to your act. Look what you're doing to your career. Because he would, he would come back with, dude, read the reviews. You know, I was great. And it, it, it really made it hard to argue uh, with him, so I just had to, uh, you know, I had to let it run its run its course and hope he survived it, uh, not only life-wise, but, you know, business-wise. And uh, luckily for, for him, he did, but it was, uh, you know, it was, it, was a, it's a, it was a tough road. It was tough for him. I mean, uh, unless you've been around somebody. I mean, I ended up doing a, a drug uh, rehab thing for five months for taking a drug hit for him at the airport. And, uh, that's a true brother right there. Well, <laughs> he also, he also, before you make me a guy here, he also pushed it off on me. I hadn't, I didn't know that I, even though I would have done it, he didn't give me the opportunity. And that would, that really uh, pissed me off is that, uh, you know, he wouldn't even, you know, didn't even ask. He just like laid it off on me. Bill, Bill, just, just, and, just take the take the hit. I remember you, you wrote in your book that you had to go to all these different rehab meetings and they're asking you questions and. Uh, oh yeah. I'm crazy. Yeah, I did. Five, I did. Yeah, once I, I did five months in the rehab and and I didn't even drink, and uh, then once I got out, I had to go all these NA and and AA meetings and uh, court ordered and uh, the funny thing was is that. You know, I got this, I had this big file that would precede me wherever I went. And uh, and everybody knew that, you know, it wasn't my stuff. And they knew I was taking the hit for it. <laughs> and yet I'm, I'm still going through all this crap. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. But, uh, yep. you know, for him, it was, and, and what I was going to tell you is the reason that I brought that up is, is that, you know, in these classes, you know, they're telling me, well, you're a... Uh, you know, you're a codependent. You know, you're uh, you know you're making it possible for him. And I'm like, okay, and exactly exactly what do you expect me to do here? You know, this is a career. Uh, this is my job. This is my brother. So, uh, you know, what what you know you you throw these phrases around, and I'm a codependent and everything. Exactly, you know, until you've been in that position. There isn't much you can do. You have to let that person run it, run their course, which Sam did, and and you know hopefully they survive. And when he hit bottom, uh, he got his act together and and uh, and came back. But uh, it's you know as, as tough as I think it was for me. I can't even imagine how tough it was for him. Uh, it's been really tough for him, and you know, over yeah. the course of Sam's career, he was. Chastised by the gay community for apparently being insensitive and making jokes about their lifestyle, and yet you reveal in your book that he never harbored any animosity towards any particular group. And I want to ask you: Did it bother him that various groups would attack him and cast judgment on him without knowing that uh, how he truly felt? And also, how did Sam feel about people who were offended, not only at his humor but were offended in general? 
Did he uh, just view them as people who just couldn't grasp or couldn't truly appreciate uh, his comedic brilliance? Well, uh, first on the gay history, Sam actually had a large gay following. Really? Uh, yeah, if you came to his shows, he had, he had uh, you know, probably a bigger gay following than the average comedian would be out there. Uh, we understood, uh, and a lot of times, you know, they actually sold out places for us, but we understood why they would come and protest. It wasn't because they didn't like Sam, because they'd come in and watch the show afterwards. Uh, it was because it was a perfect opportunity for them to to open up a new chapter of uh, ACT UP or Queer Nation or whatever you know group they were with. Well, the perfect thing was Sam Kennison coming to town, uh, you know, protest, and we can start start a new chapter. And and we we totally understood that. I mean, we we really didn't have any animosity uh, with the gay people. Now, as far as the jokes. Uh, what I always thought was was interesting was uh, you could he could make fun of the president getting shot. Uh, he could make fun of of heavy people. He could you know almost any position or whatever. I mean, one of his first routines that people rem- remembered on his HBO special is he's actually making fun of starving children. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because they have to live where they have to move and live where the food is. Yeah, and everybody thought that was funny. But if you do a gay joke, or if you say anything about the gays, all of a sudden you're a a basher and and everything else. And Sam Sam never could understand that. And to be quite honest with you, I couldn't understand it. Comedy <laughs> is comedy. Now, as far as him worried about who he offended, that 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 didn't calculate with uh, with Sam. I mean. Uh, he did. He, you know, he would do jokes about me. You know, he'd go, "Hey, here's my brother. He went to college. I don't even know if I got out of high school, and now he works for me." And uh, you know, Sam, comedy was comedy. He never went out to to intentionally hurt anyone, but he always had just uh, you know, which is what made him. He had that unusual twist that he could put on things. I mean, when you think that here is a guy. And and I was I was one that read the story about the uh, uh, the homosexual necrophilia. Yeah, where they paid three thousand three thousand dollars an hour to get fresh corpses, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> what comedian can make that funny? <laughs> Except Sam. <laughs> and so to, to temper any of that, or to try to get him to to change that, which I never ever did. Uh, I think would have I think that would have affected his comedy if he had tried to, uh, you know, to change that. And so, uh, you know, Sam, you know, you know, the the media also painted how that he was anti women. Well, there wasn't any further thing further than the truth. And this guy dated uh, beautiful women, dated a lot of women, loved women, treated them like queens, and uh, everything else. But when it came to his act, and he would talk about his relationships. And everything that was the way he would, you know, he describe it, and that's the way he put it out there. They come back. I want to uh, pull back to one point about um, for the gay community. It seems that you have individuals who are within the gay community that uh, that want to talk about equal rights and they want to talk about you know being respected. But it seems that by by Sam being controversial 
And by um, doing what he did, it seems that he actually helped them substantially by raising awareness of this and by him being perceived as, you know, a, you know, a, a, you could call him a villain in one way, even though he wasn't. It seems like his efforts actually helped and brought greater awareness and probably helped their efforts in more ways than they could ever have fathomed. Do you feel that because of Sam that a lot of people maybe were looking at some of these issues that had not looked at it so attentively before? Yeah, I think I think so. I think he definitely did. I think he brought attention to uh, you know a lot of issues, including you know feeding the hungry. And uh, but yeah, I, I definitely I definitely think he had an impact. Uh, there was a, the only time that I can think of offhand that Sam really really regretted, and he did publicly apologize for it. Is he was on the Letterman show, and uh, and it's like I said, everything was off the cuff, even. If he did talk shows, everybody else would have to submit uh, what they're going to say or what jokes they're going to do. Uh, Sam Sam refused to do that. If you first, he was a great interview, and you didn't have to worry about him ordinarily, you know, going in an area you didn't want to go to. But he was on Letterman, and Letterman uh, brought up that he, uh, you know, lived with two sisters, and uh, so Sam, you know, trying to be funny, and and he was talking about, well, yeah, you know. Uh, you can't be too safe these days with uh, with AIDS and and HIV and everything else and uh, and so Letterman said something. Well, Sam came back with a comment that he regretted, and probably the worst uh, worst thing that happened to him in his career is that he uh, he came back with a comment and he said, Yeah, you know, they say heterosexuals uh, get AIDS. Uh, name one. And then he came back with, you know, it's like the uh, capital of Vermont. Everybody knows there's one. We just don't know what it is. Well, the problem was, and Sam wasn't thinking, the problem was Ryan White had just died. Oh, wow. Like just uh, just two or three weeks before that. And you got Sam on, you know, David Letterman. And uh, that was the one comment that uh, uh, that he uh, he regretted. He, Like I said, he publicly apologized for it. And uh, he also uh, raised over $3 million for the uh, Cure of AIDS through the David Foster Foundation, and uh, which well, he never, ever would let me uh, publicize. And so... Was that before or after know, the comment? No, that, that was actually before. That's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, cause... but I mean... But Sam felt like he had an image out there, and even if I would try to clean up the image or whatever, uh, he wasn't for that. To him, that was him. Uh, you take it or you don't take it. And I mean, Sam, you either you either really loved Sam or you really didn't. <laughs> there wasn't a middle ground with this comment. You either really liked it or you really didn't. And so he didn't care. Uh, you know what? Uh, I was just about to allude to the fact that you mentioned a lot of times that no matter how Sam could be perceived on stage, it seems like he was this really great, great undercover um, angel in, in some ways. Like you mentioned that he raised $3 million for AIDS and he, he didn't want to take credit for it, and you mentioned countless times about how he would always pick up every check, and that you know he would ask the waiters and waitresses what's the biggest tip he ever got. He'd double it. So I was wondering if you can please cite some other examples of his generosity and um, how he revered members of his family and members of your family. Well, he uh, he his generosity. We were raised with nothing, and uh, Sam never. Sam never, ever, ever forgot that. And he was one of those guys that uh, when success came, 
it didn't change him. He was still the same guy. And, uh, you know, when you mentioned everything that, you know, that I put in the book that he done, he also probably gave uh, $200,000 a year to little struggling churches uh, that he would hear about. And he'd go, you know, hey, you know, give them 20000 or give them 10000 or or whatever. Uh, Sally Marr, which was the mother of Lenny Bruce, uh, Sam met her and got to be friends with her, and she was barely getting by, so he decided to do a uh, a concert, think anybody else would kick in, and, and give her $100,000. Well, no one else ever kicked in. So he gave her $100,000 uh, out of his out of his own pocket doing after we did a show in uh, Madison Square Garden in New York. And, you know, this was just, this was him. I don't know how many cars he bought for people. <laughs> uh, and like you brought up, I mean, whenever we ate, which was often, uh, he picked up every check. Wow. And, uh, you know, he also created an atmosphere around him of of uh, what I call leeches or whatever, of, of just takers, you know, not givers, just takers. And... Yeah. uh I used to tell them all the time, dude, you can't buy your friends. Your friends are there regardless. But, uh, you know, that's basically, in my opinion, that's what he tried to do. Do you feel that he was, uh, his generosity, um, I mean, it seems like he had a really big heart, but do you feel that there was an emptiness inside of him? Do you feel that he was content with himself? Did he have, um, would you say he had a healthy amount of self-esteem? Or do you think that um, there was a loneliness or a longing to feel, you know, totally fulfilled as a person? I think both of it. Okay. I think both of them. I think that uh, he's struggling like like he did, and uh, I mean, you know, you got to remember when he came out here for five years, he worked as a doorman at the comedy store. Yet, you know, the guy was great. It's just no one knew what to do with him. I bring agents and managers in to see him, and they double over in his act, and and uh, you know, and after that all through, I said, well, you know, let's do some business. Well, we don't know what to do with him. And then after six minutes on HBO, on the Rodney Dangerfield special, all of a sudden everybody knew what to do with him. <laughs> and so he had, this, he had this struggle, and I think that's one reason, uh, his struggling is one reason why he never changed his comedy any. Uh, he never headlined. He didn't headline clubs because back then it was family entertainment. Nobody's going to, you know, you know, he didn't do contests. He wasn't going to win a contest with that kind of material. And yet Rodney Dangerfield seen the... Uh, you know, seeing the talent and the potential there, and gave him, gave him his shot, and uh, and so, you know, you you had a dichotomy of, of two people here. You got this guy on stage that is just he holds nothing back. Uh, everything that he does on stage, he he either sincerely believes that, and that is his viewpoint, or. That's his life experience. So you you know you don't have a guy writing stuff. Well, hey, a funny thing happened to me on the way to the club tonight. It was, you know, it was Sam. Well, off stage, uh, you know, you had this guy that battled with uh, an inferiority uh, complex that did battled with his self image uh, from the time that he could remember growing up. Uh, and so you you put those things together, and so if there was someone in need. Or not even in need that Sam just wanted to help. It wasn't for attention. He'd do it. Wouldn't hesitate. Right. Great. And at one point, Sam was a preacher, and now he's doing stand-up comedy, and he's making millions of people laugh. 
at any point in his career, do you ever think that he felt that he somehow fell out of favor with God or that he needed to be forgiven or redeemed for any of his transgressions? Um, did he feel like he was a fallen angel in any capacity or some way, shape, or form? No, I really don't. I think that, uh, you know, we, uh, even though we were raised Pentecostal, as we got older, we we got more progressive. Uh, Sam and I, uh, we didn't believe in hell. We we could not grasp, even as as young young men, we couldn't grasp the whole concept of God loves the world so much He sent His only Son. If it would have just been you, He still would have sent that Son to die. Oh, oh, and if you don't respond to like in fifty or sixty years, you're going to be in hell throughout eternity with a fire seven times hotter than any fire known to man. We couldn't grasp that. Either God was love or he wasn't. So we didn't believe in hell. Uh, so when you're talking about Sam's, oh, his lifestyle or whatever, out of favor with God, Sam considered himself a believer. He considered himself a believer right up till when he died. And, uh, and to be quite honest with you, I, I did too. And I still do. I have no. I'm not worried about where Sam is after, after he died. He had he had a good heart. It was just that you got to separate the act from the person. Now, did he have problems? Yeah, he had a lot of problems. He had drug problems, uh, which created money problems. It created problems in his relationships. But was he still a good good guy and and a uh, good heart? A lot of people didn't. Well, a lot of people. No one knew. That Sam got killed in April, but he was planning on going back in the ministry in May. Really? At our parents' convention in Tulsa. And uh, you, you tell me he was going to give up stand-up comedy, and go back to the ministry? Uh, well, he was going to. He was giving up stand-up. Period. Wow. Uh, we had already. We had just wrapped up uh, on his when he went on his honeymoon. I had uh, finalized a three-movie deal with the New Line Cinema. Uh, we had also just. Uh, I had just signed his uh, own TV series on Fox, and uh, on that week I just renewed a three-year uh, contract in uh, Vegas at the uh, at the Hilton, and we'd already had contracts at all the casinos. So our plan was uh, to get off the road. Sam would play the casinos, maybe play a 10- or 12-city tour in the uh, summer, and do television and movies. So as far as doing stand-up, Laughlin... Uh, on our way to Laughlin, where he got killed, uh, was actually supposed to be our last show. And we were only going there so that I could sign the contracts for uh, with Don Laughlin to, for a three-year deal in, in Laughlin, Nevada. And so when you're saying getting out of stand-up, Sam was going to get out of stand-up anyway, but he, he, uh, he always felt like the, the difference with he and I, is I got up on Sunday morning. I'm pastoring a big church in Rockford, Illinois, mm-hmm. and uh, and I get up and it's over for me. I've done this 17 years. A lot of most time I've been doing it twice a day. I'm emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, whatever you want to call it. I'm I'm on empty, and it's time for me to do something else. So I came out. Sam had been bugging me about managing him. He had not hit yet, and I came out and and uh, moved to California and started managing. Now, Sam Sam got into comedy because he was, wasn't successful in the ministry. I really believe if he'd have been successful in the ministry, he never would have got into comedy. Really? But his stand-up, 
for him was his vehicle to get into movies and television. That's really what he wanted to do. And so uh, that's what he felt like. I remember before uh, he got married and and, uh, everything, we had a meeting with uh, New Line. I had set up the deal, and uh, they wanted to meet Sam. So we got this big meeting uh, with the executives from New Line, and and you know, they're telling us about the movies. They got three movies that we had signed to do, and and uh, well, Sam in the middle of this meeting gets up and says, uh, "Sounds like it's sounds like a great deal if you can work it out with my brother. We're in business and leaves." And uh, so they're all, you know, he he leaves, and they're looking at me like, and they're not just looking; they're telling me, you know, are you sure he's on board? With this, I'm like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. You know, we've been going hard, and he's tired, and everything else. But no, we're we're in. Well, as soon as I get out of the meeting, I call Sam. I go, what's going on, man? And he goes, I was sitting there, and I realized I had attained every goal that I had set out to do. And I, you know, and I just realized that I, you know, I've got to get, I've got to get some new dreams. I've got to get some new, new goals. And uh, I think his new dreams, his new goals, was to be get back in the ministry, and uh, you know to fulfill what you know he he wanted to do when he, when he was younger. He just wasn't successful at it. No, nope. and he had told me several times that if I got back in the ministry now, I'd pack everywhere I went. And I go, well, yeah, you're Sam Tennyson. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you would. <laughs> so I, if he went back and he did it. What kind of ideals do you think he'd be preaching about? I mean, what do you, how, what do you, did he have an idea of what are some of his main four or five ideals that he'd be preaching about? Um, you know, and that would, that would be amazing if he did it, if he got to that point. Well, I think, I, yeah, I think the subject matter uh, wouldn't have been any different than when he, when he did it before, except now he's going to be able to, you know, move people and entertain them and, and everything that you need to, uh, uh, that you need to do, and uh, as far as 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 far as the subject matter and all that, uh, I don't think I don't think it changed any. I mean, his whole purpose was even in this comedy, you know, he was he was jokingly saying, "I'm here to help people. I'm here to you know, I'm here to change lives and stuff." Well, I think that's what he would have done in the ministry. Did he ever talk? Did he ever talk about having children? Did he ever talk about wanting to settle down and uh, you know have a big family? Well, after after he died, we found out that he has a daughter. Uh, but uh, I I just don't know that I don't know that that was Sam's priority. Uh, I have a daughter, and and he uh, of course I think she was perfect too, but he thought she was perfect, and uh, and he used to tell me said I got you know you ruined ruined it for me having any kids. I go, what are you talking about? He said, well look at Ginger. Man, I'll never have a kid like that. So, if I have a kid, I'm going to be going, hey, hey, how come you not like her? Look at this. And uh, so, in his joking manner, he really did. He really did feel that way. And so, I just don't. I don't know that he wanted a. Uh, uh, I don't know that he wanted kids. I really don't. Okay. Hang, hang on. My granddaughter just walked in the studio. Uh, so, if you hear noise, that's her. Does, does she? When she uh, cries for food, does she cry like Tim? Ah, my food. <laughs> I think it's I think it's a Kinnison trait. It's a Kinnison trait. Um, yeah, I think so. I want to know. Can we? I'd like to ask you two questions about 
uh, Sam's spirituality going a little bit more. And I want to ask All you, right. did Sam ever visit any psychics or astrologers in his life? And if so, um, did they ever give him any information that he practically applied to decisions he was making? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Okay. Not not that I'm aware of. Uh, after after Sam died, there was a uh, uh, they did a special with a medium uh, named George Anderson, and they got a hold of me and and uh, wanted to know if I would be willing to uh, have a reading on on camera and and everything. And I uh, and and I, I agreed to do it, but I told them. Uh, I told the publicist because it was actually the same publicist I had used uh, when I did the tribute to Sam on Fox, and she wasn't got a hold of me. I said I'll do it, but I don't believe in it. Okay. I said I uh, I don't I don't believe in communicating with the dead or, or whatever, but I'll do it. But I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to go along with it if it doesn't if it doesn't work. Mm. Well, I go in and uh, and the George Anderson uh, reads me. And or whatever you I don't know what you use the correct terminology, and uh, and it blew me away. It blew me away being a being a preacher and you know being taught and raised that uh, you know that was uh, that was wrong and everything. This guy just blew me away. But what did he, he say didn't to you? get a hold of Sam. Well, he got a hold of uh, he got a hold of my dad, my mother, my brother Kevin, who had been shot to death, and uh, but never didn't get a hold of Sam. And uh, afterwards, you know, they introduced me, and and uh, you know, and I told them, I said, you know, I, I know that uh, they were all wanting you to get get a hold of Sam, but I, you know, I really need closure with uh, my brother Kevin. And he didn't have a clue who I was talking about. He had spent 12 years in an institution because they thought he was nuts hearing these voices and all that. But I got I got to be honest with you, Ryan. It made a uh, it made a believer out of me because. He uh, he told me things about them and and things like that that there's no way they would have known. Oh. But as far as Sam, I I don't I'm not aware of you know other than you know people coming to a show or something and you know saying they were psychic and and uh, this or that. But I don't I don't know of him ever having a reading or anything. Okay. And there's something that I wanted to point out in one of Sam's routines, which I love. I he was he was doing this bit. About why his parents were, why your parents were not sending him money, and he was guilting him about it. And he says in his act along the lines that, you know, prior to them conceiving and prior to them having sex, he was a spirit in the cosmos. He was walking around. He had fine, but because they had to conceive him, they they're responsible for pulling him into a physical body, and they are fully responsible for him, and they should send him money. I thought that was great, and it was brilliant, and. I was wondering, did he believe that he was an eternal spirit having multiple lifetimes, or this was a one-shot deal as far as um, his evolution? Um, I don't know. I don't know. We had, we, had, uh, we had many, many, many talks about it. And, uh, you know, the, the, our, our problem was, I mean, we could, and, and he may have felt that way. He did. He does believe, and he did believe, like, that routine that uh, we, you know, we just didn't pop out of nowhere, that we were with God from the beginning. And uh, as far as being uh, reincarnated, uh, we just, we, we had nothing to, to say it's not real, but we also didn't have anything that we felt substantial to tell us it was real. 
And uh, again, I hate to you know I hate to speak, but he's not here. But I hate to speak for whatever his beliefs were. Uh, it's very possible that he did believe that. It's just that, uh, like myself, you know, and I remember used to say, you know, you you meet these people, and in a previous life they were a king and they were a prince and they were you know this they were all were like I said how come you ever meet anybody who goes in the last life I was a child molester <laughs> I was a serial killer and and he would and he would be serious about it he goes you know it, 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 their credibility would be a little better if they had something you know <laughs> working the way up the ladder instead of coming down the ladder <laughs> I let you <laughs> I let you know if we can um. Uh, if we can uh, focus a little bit about Sam's relationships with other people that he had worked with. And one of the ones I want to ask you about is Howard Stern. And um, in your experience, do you feel that Howard was a really true friend to Sam? And how did Sam's relationship with Howard Stern impact his professional and personal career? Uh, when Sam passed, uh, Howard actually wrote the forward in my book and, uh, and, and actually requested that, uh, that he could do that, which I naturally I said, yes. And uh, but I remember him calling me, and we were having a memorial service in here in Hollywood, and then we were doing the uh, funeral service, religious service in Tulsa. And but he called me before the memorial service and said, "I'm not coming out." And uh, I don't know if he appreciate me saying this, but he said, "You know, all those, you know, those are a bunch of hypocrites and everything else, and and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be involved." Uh, with that, but he wanted to, uh, he wanted to let me know how his concerns were and, and, uh, his condolences, but he said something. And at first it threw me off. He said, I know, uh, or he said, I know, uh, Sam was my best friend, but I know I wasn't his best friend. And when he first told me that, I'm thinking, what, you know, what's he talking? Then as I thought about it, I thought, yeah, you know, that's that's actually pretty observant, because Sam did probably have other people he considered closer friends than than Howard, but he may have been Howard's best friend, and uh, they were definitely even in Sam's eyes and in Howard's eyes, you'd have to see them together off the air, whatever. They were friends, and uh, they talked to each other a lot. I mean, Sam was up all night, and uh, it was nothing for you know he, he and Howard to talk at two, three, four o'clock in the morning. And, uh, you know, he would be on Howard whenever Howard wanted him on, they, they would be on there. And so they, they, they had a relationship, uh, that would, was very close. Now, I think that, uh, I think that Howard saw in Sam this, this unbridled guy that, that I think Howard wanted to be. I told Howard one time, I said, you know, I think the real you you're the guy on, behind the microphone, because, and, and I think you know Howard. If you if you know Howard, uh, the Howard ought, that's not on the air is totally different than the guy that's on the air. And I told him, I said, I really think that I really think that's the real you because that's where your real feelings and uh, everything else comes out. With Sam, I remember our first time going on the show, and at that time, Howard didn't like uh, stand-up comedians on his show because he. he Later on, he told me that, that the reason he didn't care for them and didn't want them on a show, they never would come out of character. But yet Sam comes on, and I remember we took a red eye to, to do that show from L.A. to New York, and uh, we're flying, and I remember Sam's nervous about 
uh, you know, going on the air, even though at that time I think Howard was just on in uh, Philadelphia and New York, might have been on in Washington also, but it wasn't nationwide. But, he was, you know, everybody everybody knew who he was, and Sam was worried about it. And we were on the plane talking. He goes, dude, how, you know, how would you handle this? I go, well, Sam, you got to figure that Howard's got an ego bigger than that the building he's in. So give it up to him. When you go in, you know, give it up to the man, you know, the king of all media. Give it up to him. And uh, and remember, it's his show. Let him, you know, let him lead you around. Well, Sam not only does that, but typical Sam, he walks in in the studio. When they bring him in, he gets down on his knees and starts bowing to Howard. They're in the studio. First time he meets him, you know, you're the king. You're the king. <laughs> Everything else. And so... Uh, I think that Sam really, 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 really liked Howard, but I think that he also had that little space there in between that might have been uh, intimidation or whatever that, you know, he he also didn't want to piss off Howard. Yeah. And, then, you know, and they did have one time where, you know, they were on the house with each other, and it wasn't fun for either one of them. No, but um, in terms of you mentioned earlier in our interview that there are a lot of people that uh, to, had taken advantage of Sam and there were leashes on Sam, but according to your book, it seems like Howard wasn't one of those people. Do you think that uh, Howard really did look out for Sam and uh, really did have his best interests at heart and really had genuine concern for him? No, he really, I, I, and I really do believe that. And after, you know, after Sam died and, and up to this day, I consider, I consider Howard a friend and uh, uh, he probably has done more other than myself to keep Sam alive uh, after he had died, than anybody else. I mean, there was a there was a true affection between the two of them. They would have done anything for each other. Uh, that's great. And um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about in 1980 at the Comedy Store, you, Sam, and your brother Kevin, you discover Robin Williams. Robin and Sam apparently they became really good friends and lived together. And I wanted to ask you, how did Robin Williams style? and level of intensity impact Sam, and do you feel that Robin Williams elevated Sam's performance? Um, God, that's, a, that's, a, that's a hard question. Okay. Uh, when, when Sam and Robin met each other, uh, Sam definitely wasn't a, you know, wasn't a big star, but he had a large underground following uh, out here in L.A., and uh, they would call, I mean, it, whenever he would come on, which Mitzi Shore, the owner of the comedy store, usually would hold Sam off till 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning to sell during Sam, knowing that when Sam come up, he was going to have a full house, and he, and he would. I don't care if it was 2 o'clock in the morning. You'd have porn stars, uh, celebrities, uh, you know, just the nice people of Hollywood would jam in. And... Uh, the with stand up comedians they have a they have a thing about uh, being on a stage together. And at first they really they really get on a stage together to see who is the best. And then, you know, after they've established that then you know, then they get up because they like each other. But I remember the uh one of Sam's dreams was to be on stage with Robin. Well, he gets on him and Robin get on stage together and this is when they first Basically, we're meeting each other. They get on stage together, and Robin blows him off the stage. And uh, Sam really 
he's really depressed about it. Afterwards, we go behind the comedy store, and he's telling me, man, he just he just blew me off the tape, man. I don't know what to do. And I said, next time you're up there with him, take him into your territory. Don't get don't get out of his territory, man. You know, don't let him pull you in on what he does. Bring Robin in on what you do. Take him to church. You know church. And uh, so the next time that they got up, they they did that, and then they then there was a mutual respect between the two of them that ended up being a uh, a great friendship. But I think. And I hope this doesn't sound egotistical. I think that that Sam affected Robin more than Robin affected Sam. Really? Uh, Robin was always intrigued with church. He told me one night that uh, said I would love to be a real preacher for one night. And I was like, Why would you want to do that? And he said, I would. I would like to know what it's like to change somebody. To seriously change somebody's life. I like to know what that feels like. And so I think a large part of that, because uh, Robin and Sam, first, when they're on stage together, they'd always they'd always end up doing a lot of church stuff, you know, where Robin's acting like a preacher and Sam playing the piano and and uh, their routines and and uh, whatever they would they would do, because they're both great at improv. And uh, but I really think that Sam probably influenced Robin more than than Robin influenced Sam. Uh, like you said, though, Robin did help. Sam a lot. I mean, he signed a lease on a house uh, for Sam to have a place to live at one time. Uh, when Sam died, it was Robin that called me and, and uh, said Matt and Rad was wanting to do a fundraiser, but uh, he didn't want to do that, but he would do a he would, he would do a tribute uh, you know, for me and, and so I ended up going to uh, getting a special on Fox with uh, Robin Williams, Jim Carrey, and uh, Rodney Dangerfield, among others. But that was Robin that that talked me into doing that. And so, uh, you know, he, uh, they were they were they were close friends. I watched close friends. I watched that tribute, and it was beautiful. And I, I particularly loved Jim Carrey's um, total adoration and praise for for Sam. And I was wondering what Sam and Jim Carrey's relationship was and how do you think that Sam impacted Jim and how did Jim impact Sam in terms of their style, in terms of their personal relationship? Um, we met Jim Carrey uh, the first night he was in, in Hollywood. And uh, he was he actually wasn't a stand-up comedian then. He was a uh, impressionist and would do impressions and was un, unreal. Sam used to tease him about he made a pact with the devil to have the facial muscle controls that he had. And uh, uh, Jim and and Sam uh, became, well, Jim and my whole family. My uh, Him and my brother Kevin ended up being best friends. But went on the vacations with us. Uh, shoot, I remember uh, I had a big brawl at the Glendale Mall out here that Jim was, Jim was involved in with Sam and and Kevin and a few others, and and uh, so they they were close. There again, you, you know, if uh, if you if you met Sam or you see Sam on or hear him on the Howard Stern show or whatever, Sam was a strong personality. So when you talk about you know someone influencing someone, uh, it basically was Sam influencing. The other individual, because his, his personality was so strong, and and comedians are not comedians, but but entertainers alone, they have this 
oh, they have this thing about preachers. And uh, even though they love to make fun of them and everything, there's also that side of curiosity of, you know, of these guys. And, and so now here you have Sam, who had been a preacher for seven years. Now he's a comedian. And, uh, you know, and ends up being their friend. And they're just, they're just intrigued with that. So I think that Sam there, again, probably influenced Jim more than um, than Jim influenced Sam because at that time, Jim really wasn't a stand-up comedian. But uh, they, remain, they remained very close. One of the – I'll tell you a story I've never told anyone, but I think it really speaks to the character of Jim Carrey. Uh, Jim would – you know, he came out and he hit right out of the gate and then did a – you know, did a – couple bad movies and had a bad series called the uh, Duff Factory that lasted like three shows and uh, and he really struggled until he got the gig on In Living Color. He really struggled. Well, Sam is, you know, Sam's doing, doing great and I remember he, he told me and we run into Jim and he said, uh, tell Jim I want him to open for me. I'll pay him 5000 a show. And uh, so I'm thinking, you know, Jim having you know, the struggles he was having and things, I'm thinking, well, he, he'd, he'd go for that. So I remember I got, got with Jim and, and uh, told him, you know, Sam wants to take you out on tour with him, and uh, he'll pay you 5000 a show. And I remember Jim uh, telling me, even you know, even though he's really having a hard time, he goes, I can't do it, Bill. And I'm going, well, you know, Jim, you need some money, and, uh, you know, this is an easy gig. And, uh, and he said, I, I just, I can't, I can't be around that lifestyle. And I always respected that. And the only other person I've ever told this to was uh, Jim's daughter. I said, I want you to know what kind of dad that you have. And uh, that rather than to be around the drugs and and all that stuff, he'd rather go without the money wow. and and live with his principles than, than to do that. And that always stuck out to me so with, uh, with Jim. Jim. Who I love to this day, and I think he's a fantastic person. Wow. That's a Great. So Jim, with Jim, was pretty much a straight edge. He never got involved in any kind of uh, substances or. Not that I ever knew. Wow. And Not so, that I ever knew. And other, you think about a guy like Jim Carrey, who's a comedic genius. I bring up two other names who are regarded as two of the greatest comedians uh, of our lifetime, which are Bill Hicks and George Carlin. And it seems that Sam resonated with both of these individuals as well. And I was wondering uh, if you could elaborate a little bit more on. Sam's relationship with Bill Hicks and his relationship with George Carlin, and if they if they tended to play off each other as well, if they tended to kind of work together, or if they you know inspired each other. Uh, well, Bill Hicks uh, started in Houston where Sam was at. They started they actually started together. Except uh, Bill was like a kid. Uh, I remember being with uh, with him at his 18th birthday when he uh, could legally drink his first. <laughs> The first drink, uh, he, he jumped the gun a little bit on that, but this was the first time he legally could do it. And uh, and they were really close. And Bill Hicks came out to to uh, L.A. with Sam, along with about six or seven other guys, uh, all together. Well, Bill got a, he got a pilot, the, I think the very first week he was here. And uh, it didn't end up doing anything, but, he, you know, they gave him good money, and I remember he moved into a nice house and, and everything, and uh, but he kind of to to the you know to to Sam and these other comedians, uh, it almost was like that that 
you know, when he got the pilot, he kind of separated himself. And I don't, I don't know that uh, Sam was big on loyalty. And I think that that, you know, I think that affected their relationship. And they really weren't, you know, as close as they were in Houston after that. And to be honest with you, they never really saw each other that much. Uh, I do think that that later on, you know, the way that Bill, uh, you know, Bill's comedy turned turned around because when he first started, he was really a lot like Jim Carrey. I mean, he could do these impressions of characters and, and all that that were unreal. So I think Sam influenced uh, Bill on on the material and the seriousness of getting up in comedy. Now, George Carlin, Sam and George Carlin end up being uh, uh, good friends. And when Sam died, George Carlin sent an arrangement so big to Tulsa we couldn't. They couldn't get it through the the front door of the funeral home. Wow! So we had to we had to leave it out in the entrance, and then took it over to the uh, church for the service. And then he called me several times. And uh, typical George Carlin, he called me one time. He goes, uh, "Bill, Bill," and I'm going, "Yeah, George." He goes, uh, "I think Sam's feeding me," and I'm going, uh, "Feeding you what?" He said, "I think he, I think he's feeding me information from the other side, man." And uh, what he's telling you what it's like? What is it? No, I think he's I think he's giving me uh, comedy material and uh, everything from the other side. So <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe he was, but George sure thought thought so. So that was that was kind of their relationship. Sam respected both uh, very much. George Carlin was one of his favorites, and uh, and like I said, you know, Bill and and Sam were. Really, really close friends in Texas. And then when they came out here, I think their careers went in different directions. And and more than anything, I just don't think they saw each other very often. See each other very often. And one of uh, Sam's biggest uh, feuds was with Andrew Dice Clay. And I, my, I, when I was reading your book, apparently it started at the comedy store. But do you think that if Sam were still alive today, that he and Andrew Dice Clay would have probably uh, patched things up and potentially would have been going on tour together? Oh no! No, no, that that never would happen. No, they really they, uh, they might they might have passed things up. Uh, uh, I uh, I got this I got this great idea one day, and I sat down with Sam, and and this is I mean the feud between Dice Clay and Sam was real, and that wasn't uh, you know that wasn't show business. That was that was real. Had, you know, and had a lot of feelings that that went back. The biggest thing was is that. Uh, Sam felt like that uh, Dice, you know, was taking material that Sam had done and was doing it, and and uh, and was was following him pretty much in whatever uh, you know business steps that that he would take. And, and I think to a certain extent, Sam was Sam was right. Uh, Dice again was good friends with my brother Kevin, and at one time they were all good friends. They had a deal happen where they was all living in uh, called the mansion, a house up behind the comedy store, where a bunch of comedians would live. If they're struggling or whatever, and uh, something happened up there that that really, you know, messed up the relationship with Sam and Dice, and that that was never patched up. Well, well what and happened? It ended up being a big, uh, a big. Uh, uh, well, I guess you couldn't have girlfriends or 
or whatever, spend the night up there. And uh, Sam's best friend at that time, a guy named Carl LeBeau, his girlfriend was staying there, and I think uh, Dice had, had turned him into Mitzi or something, so Mitzi kicked him. Carl and Sam and Christy, all three out. And, uh, and anyhow, that's a story that, as well as I know it, I wasn't there. But I do know that their their feud was, was real. Now, I had come up with this idea of Dice and Sam going out on tour together, even though they really, really don't like each other. They're never in the building at the same time. Uh, depending on where they're at, uh, would be, you know, like on the East Coast, uh, Dice was a little bigger than Sam. Sam, you know, in the Midwest and West was a lot bigger than, than Dice. So, I mean, those areas, then, you know, the other one would come out last and really kind of have like a comedy WWE <laughs> format or whatever. And um, so I, I pitched it to Sam, and that, that was quite a selling job. And after I pitched it to him, then I told him, I said, you're going to have to call, you're going to have to call Dice. And uh, he goes, well, you know, get him online. So I remember I got him on, <laughs> got him on the phone and uh, it did not end well. Let me put it that way. They didn't, uh, they didn't want to meet for tea. No, no, they, it, did, it didn't, it did not end well. And, uh, but, it, it, you know, to me, it didn't, it didn't change the business aspect of it. They both would make a few million dollars off of it and, and uh, so I told Dice, I said, you know, hey, talk to your dad, which uh, his dad was like I was to uh, Sam. He really, you know, kind of ran Dice's career, even though Dice had a manager and an agent. His dad pretty much called the shots. I said, talk to your dad and see what he thinks. And, you know, get back to me. Well, instead of getting back to me, he goes on the Arsenio Hall show. And somehow the word had, had got out, and Arsenio was going, you know, I heard that you and Sam Kennison are, are uh, going out to uh, on tour together, and uh, you know, and so Dice, Dice goes into this whole thing of, uh, uh, yeah, you know, Sam called me, and you know, and he wanted to uh, open for me, and well, I work alone, and uh, you know, blah 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 blah. Well, none of that was true, <laughs> and uh, so Sam is call he calls me in the middle of this show, and him Arsenio at the time are on the outs, and he said, hey, tell Arsenio I'll come on next week. So I call our city, oh, you know, I'm saying Sam wants to come on next week. And uh, that's when he did, you know, the whole thing about Dice on there of, uh, of uh, you know, he took uh, Sam's jokes, uh, Fonzie's attitude, and uh, or Fonzie's jacket and Stallone's attitude. And uh, that's how I made it out here. Anyhow, but Sam, he came out with something there because our city goes, this is when our Dice Day was going on the best stand-up comedian of all time. He had this movie coming out called uh, uh, Ford Fairlane or something. And, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the best actor of all time. And so well, Arsenio, you know, when Sam gets there, Sam goes, or Arsenio goes, Sam. You know, uh, Dice was here, and he said he's the top comedian of all time. He's the best of all time. And Sam had an answer that I just thought was genius. And he goes, you know what, Arsenio, I... Uh, I don't think there is a best. I think if you're really, really, really good and you're really, really, really lucky, comedy is like a rainbow and you get to be a shade in that in that rainbow. And I thought, man, that you know, that was oh, typical yeah. Sam. Just uh, I thought, what a great way to describe <laughs> it. But the uh you know, the feud with Dice and Sam was real. 
I don't think it would have been patched up. Uh, I have no problem with dice. We see each other. Uh, we run into each other. We don't go out to dinner, but we run into each other. We're friendly and uh, everything else. But the, the feud was real. Oh, that's that's that's, that's amazing. Uh, I mean, it's just interesting that how far back that goes. Bill, we only um, I'm going to ask you a couple more questions. And again, I can't. Uh, Tell you how much I appreciate. It. I know this interview had gone a lot longer than we originally expected, but I just I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. It's just it's just such great great uh, insights. Um, this is a tough question for me to ask for you, but All right. the day that your brother had died, did you have a gut feeling or sense that something was amiss that day? Did you have a nagging feeling that something um, that you, you knew something was wrong, did it, or did it kind of just shock you? Or something out of nowhere, um, or even prior to I it. Think, I think Sam. I think Sam had a premonition that I don't know that he knew he was going to die, but I think Sam had a premonition that something was going to happen to him. Okay. And uh, because of you know some of the things that he uh, did, some of the things that he uh, said, and uh, so I think that. You know, he had a premonition. On my on my side, uh, with Sam's lifestyle and everything, I, I I just always felt like he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna live a long time. He wasn't gonna be an old man. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so when it happened, it was surprised how it happened, but the end result was not a surprise to me. If you if if I'm saying that correctly, yeah. Uh, I, I will say this, that uh, what transpired that day, it was like it was supposed to happen. Uh, I've lost, I'm the only family member left alive in my in my family. My three brothers are passed. My mother and father are passed. And uh, Sam's was probably the easiest to accept because it just, I was there. It seemed like this was just the way it was supposed to be. He wasn't in any pain. Uh, you know, we had had some, you know, great conversations in the weeks prior to this, and even on that particular day we did. But if you took if you took two minutes out of that day, we're not there. It doesn't happen. And it was just like it was supposed to happen. So it wasn't a surprise. It was about like Robin Williams, uh, you know, dying. It was a shock, but it wasn't a shock. It's kind of like you said well, it was going to happen, or since it was going to be yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. And since the, I mean, it's been is it 22 years since your brother has uh, has passed, and in the course of that, since he's passed, have you ever had um, feelings that he's been around you, or have you had signs that he's, you know, looking out for you, been around you, or trying to communicate with you in any capacity? Uh, yeah, I had a, uh, I had an experience, oh, maybe a year after. Uh, Sam died that I, I had I had like a dream or it was stronger than a dream and, and I was with Sam and uh, I had not preached in years and you know he was kind of telling me what it was like where he was at and then uh, I remember him telling me I want you to go back to Tulsa and, and preach at uh, at our parents church I want you to have a revival there and I remember you know, in this dream, we'll call it. Uh, I told him, I said, uh, you know, dude, 
it had been like seven years. I said, I haven't preached in seven years. Well, don't worry about it. I'll help you. And in this dream, all of a sudden, we were in the, we was at our parents' church and and had a packed house, and, and I'm up ministering. And uh, I called, you know, I called my mother later on. Of course, she was ecstatic that I would, uh, I guess she thought I was coming back in the ministry or whatever, but I said, you know, I, I just want to come there and hold a, uh, hold a crusade, and, and she was all for it. And, uh, but she didn't have hardly any people. Uh, we were there from April to September, and probably the first month, we never had 30 people in any one service. But then all of a sudden, it broke open, and, and we ended up packing it out, which would be about 600 people filled that church. We ran it for weeks with with it just packed out. So uh, I had that experience uh, with Sam that uh, was undeniable to me. Now, other people, you know, I can tell them about it, and they can, you know, make excuses or whatever. Uh, that was undeniable to me. I, I really believe that I did communicate with them. Uh, I did what whatever his message was for me to, to go and do in Tulsa, and it was very successful. And uh, so, yeah, I have had I've had that moment, and you know, and then you have other times that you know, every once in a while, you just feel like he's there. Yeah. I've never had this. Uh, you know, my brother Kevin was murdered. He was shot in the back of the head. I, for years, I couldn't even discuss it. And uh, I never ever felt like that with Sam. I, for whatever reasons, I've never I've never grieved that Sam's not with us because I, I I I just feel like he is. It's, and so one time somebody told me, "Well, he's never he's never died to you because you're dealing with him every day. You're you know you're dealing with uh, still with his estate and with projects and uh, everything else. And maybe that's maybe that's true. But I don't. I've just never had that." sense of separation I did with others in my family. Oh. And the uh, final question I have for you, Bill, is what impact do you feel that Sam had on humanity overall? Do you feel that his great passion, his great energy, his incredible talent for making millions of people laugh did make the world a better place and a happier place? I think that... Uh... Sam is uh, is very was very unique in in that if you're lucky, and I don't think most people are or destined, whatever way you want to put it. Sam ended up doing something that uh, he was created to do, in my opinion. He was created to be a stand-up comedian. He tried preaching, just didn't work. Comedy was what he was put on this earth to do. And I definitely think, uh, you know, he changed the world of comedy. I think when he died, it wasn't just a loss to our family. I think it was a loss to the world of comedy. I think that, uh, I think he literally changed more people's lives in comedy than he ever did in preaching. I really, really believe that. And his impact on people's lives, I mean, when you consider... You know, the following that he had, and here we are 22 years later. It's still like a cult following. I mean, he has a gigantic following out there. And yet these guys are my age now. You know, these aren't these aren't kids, and we're doing a movie. Hopefully, you know, the younger generation will, will get to find out, you know, what, what his comedy and stuff was like. But, yeah, I definitely think he uh, influenced life. I mean, 
you know, man, yeah, when he was alive, you had, you had politicians bring him up. And even to this day on O'Reilly, you have O'Reilly, you know, bring up a Sam Kinison anecdote or whatever that would fit for whatever he's talking about. So, yeah, I definitely think he had an impact, and I think that, that he did what he was created to do. Oh. Bill Kinison, Sam Kinison's brother, manager, truly his brother's keeper. Uh, Mr. Kinnison, it was truly, truly an honor to speak with you and to have you on the program. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's my privilege, Ryan. I enjoyed it. Joining us now is world-renowned and globally respected psychic medium, Miss Lisa McGarity. You can learn more about Miss McGarity by going to her website at lisamcgarity.com. Miss McGarity, what can you tell us about Mr. Sam Kinnison? The great and funny Sam Kinison. He was definitely uh, an amazing guy. You know, an amazing guy. I wish he was here longer. This is a soul who uh, was born into a preaching family, was surrounded by folks in the preaching business. And actually, I don't, I'm sure you know, he made a short attempt to be a preacher himself. But when I look at it from a spiritual point of view, what I'm shown is that he really came into this life to be a totally different kind of preacher. This was a spirit who just hated hypocrisy and a deep level. He really wanted to tell the truth. So that's what he did. He got up on stage and he ended up telling the truth like, you know, people could barely stand, but left us all laughing and, you know, doubled over listening to him with his wild antics. But he he would take the stuff that nobody wanted to say or were too scared to say and make it hysterical and make it funny. And he said it louder and bigger and more forthright than anybody else had the guts to do. I think that his his real mission in life, his spiritual mission, was to stand up to lies and to stand up to the kind of formality and social structure that can oppress people and just be the guy that he was born to be. Uh, so did he fulfill his uh, purpose for this life, for his life? I do. I do. It's unfortunate that it was such a short life. And, of course, being a human being, we all make mistakes, and Sam made mistakes too. But, yeah, I do feel he accomplished his mission in this lifetime. All right. Do you have any inclination about whether or not he was actually driving his spirit guides uh, absolutely crazy? Or were they? Was it, a, <laughs> was it a big challenge for them to work with Sam? Uh, you know, I'm sure his spirit guides loved him um, because he was so much fun. And because he was doing exactly what he felt like he wanted to do at any given moment. You know, some of it was a mistake. We know that now. <laughs> but he had a good time the whole way. So I, I think he probably made his guides happy. All right. And do you feel that uh, he is – is he fully crossed over into the next reality or is he hanging around certain individuals that are alive right now and kind of assisting them? You know, it's funny that you say that. I do think he likes to hang out in the comedy circle. Absolutely. That's clear because that's his world. Those are his people. But I also had the strong feeling when I, when I was looking at this that this is a spirit who is ready to come back. Really? So he may be getting it together now to come back for another lifetime. Oh, that's that's really wonderful. And uh, what do you, do, you, do you have any idea where he might come back as? Do you think he'll come back as a as a person similar to the life he just lived, or will he go I, in a totally different direction? I really do think he'll come back and still work in entertainment, but he'll he'll have a little bit more moderate lifestyle this time. Okay. A little bit more. That's great. <laughs> It's Lisa McGarity. That was a great analysis. And to learn more about Ms. McGarity, please go to her website at Lisa McGarity. M-C-G-A-R-R-I-T-Y dot com. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you, Ryan. Joining us now is globally respected psychic medium and best-selling author, Miss Carrie O'Connor. You can learn more about Miss O'Connor by going to her website at carrieoconnor.com. Miss O'Connor, what can you tell us about the life of Mr. Sam Kinison? 
Sam Kennison was an interesting, interesting man. I, I remember him as a comic and just uh, I would watch his energy field when he was on stage and just really this the scream thing would really shake people up. But what I learned about him is that he had a lot of paradoxes. He came in, was born in a preacher's son, was a preacher for a while. And as he uh, went to the stage, he, he did his own form of preaching. He shook people up by his screaming. He was really um, obnoxious. He would like energetically go right to their great, their uh, their feet and their ground. So he's a groundbreaking guy, not afraid to bust the system. He was definitely a system buster. But there was also a part of Sam that was very, I see gold around his heart. And there was he was really heart-centered and very much wanted to speak the truth in, in his own way. And he wasn't afraid to go to the... Um, opposite ends you know he was he, he broke family generational patterns i just saw him with um it looked like an energetic collar around his neck and he came in to that family in particular with a restrictive energy and he just um freed them from feeling that they have to continue this repressed kind of preaching so he's he's an amazing character wow so he was one of these people you think that he could have actually um impacted the entire soul group trajectory of the cluster of souls that he incarnated with for this particular lifetime Yes, I do, Ryan. I really, when I watch, see somebody and it looks like they create this doorway or this opening for other people to follow through, or it looks like they're clearing out the genetic DNA for their family, and then it goes, we're all connected. So then it goes to after the, what I call the humanity grids. And so he cre absolutely created a doorway for people to go into. Uh, unplugging from any kind of holding patterns that they're in, especially about communication, be able to really um, speak your truth. He's, he was really about truth. When it's in, in that gold energy about the heart, he was a lot uh, more sensitive than people could um, say or see. And that's also led, led to the drugs. And I'm also seeing that there's a part of him that was very, very intuitive and saw big. Um, he definitely had to have visions like uh, the eye experience or uh, magic mushrooms, because he shows me that um, within his energy field. So he had this ability to see, again, like the big picture, and then he tried to express it in the mundane world. And sometimes that's um, it's hard to do at times. And in this lifetime, he is remembered even 22 years since he's passed. I and mean, people, he had a substantial impact on the world of comedy. A lot of people loved him. Right. What about his right. previous lifetimes? Was he having the same impact in his previous lifetimes? And do you have an inclination of what his previous lifetimes might have been. One lifetime that is really significant, that has influenced this lifetime, he just showed me him getting um, hung in front of a whole bunch of people. And this was uh, over in Europe in that he was wrongly accused and that he couldn't speak. And I'm just seeing this great big energetic rope around his neck. And there was a lot of humiliation beforehand. And so there he was, imagine anticipating being hung in front of your family and friends and, and especially being wrongly accused. And he went out like vowing that I will set the record straight. I'm gonna like clear my name. So he came in, it's like, um, imagine being born. I see a baby coming down the vaginal canal with a great big mouth open. He came in. <laughs> remembering like energetically I call it like a past life hangover that lifetime in particular because it wasn't that far back in his incarnational experiences and so he absolutely died feeling wrongly accused humiliated and that he was going to right a wrong it's like he, he so has a what era was this what time did you... it, I'm seeing it's about probably like the 1500s okay. late 1500s I just saw 1580 and that was that his previous time before he came in before this life it was he had one after that, but it was very short. He shows me one in the 1700s or maybe late 1700s as a little baby, and I'm seeing a, like a four-year-old that dies with pneumonia. And it's almost like that he came in with that lifetime to um, prep up for this lifetime. 
um, just to get, have the experience of getting into the physical body. You know, when we're when we're in energetic form, we are very, very, um, let's just say big. We're very much connected to um, all different levels or we're very aware of our multidimensional self. And then squeezing down into the physical body, especially when you have such a powerful energy that he has, it sometimes could feel like I've seen a lot of dead people do this. They're like, how did I fit in that that small costume? My, my energy is too big. So that lifetime allowed him, even though it was brief, he definitely had um, a, a lot of sorrow in that lifetime. So he's had many, many lifetimes of of being wrongly accused, of really having to speak and communicate. And um, I just see grief all over his lungs and his heart. So a lot of grief, grief, grief stricken lifetimes. And this time he was here to, again, break the um, people's, open people's minds up big time. Now, in this life, he is emulating, he's like an explosive energy. He's uh, captivating the attention of people. He's really engaging people. Was that projection or be able to manifest that kind of energy? Was that something that he learned in this life? Or did he always have this larger than life um, spiritual energy that is carried with him throughout his other lifetimes? That's a great question, Ryan. And I'll admit, I see this with um, Stuart Wilde, or I'll look at people's energy field that have such a big presence. They walk into the room and people just turn around because they could feel their energetic presence. So he had many lifetimes with that, and he was building up an energy, you could say signature, to be able to have that strong, strong presence. But I've also noticed that people that have that strong energy signature have experienced what I call the theme of extremes. So they've had lifetimes of extreme enslavement when they're not able to talk. He just shows me blind and mute. And I'm even seeing um, skin diseases like leprosy. So they've had lifetimes and lifetimes of extreme circumstances that lead them to either getting stuck in a holding pattern or break free and that those people with that strong signature tend to be the, um, I call them the system busters. They break free from those holding patterns and as they do it, it allows humanity to. Sam had a brother, Bill Kinison, and Bill seemed to really help Sam a lot. He was Sam's rock. He's probably the reason why Sam was able to continue as long as he did and was a large part of his success because he was always behind the scenes and always taking care of him. I was wondering to know if Bill and Sam had 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 previous lifetimes together and uh, what their connection is on a uh, metaphysical spiritual level. What I see their energy pattern is what I call it a twin flame energy. And a lot of times people think twin flames have to be um, a partnership, but you could have all four form of twin flames. And the twin flame energy pattern is like the, imagine the yin yang. It's the closest part of, um, the closeness goes beyond any kind of words. There's a true heart connection. When I see energetic tubes that go right to the thymus and the high heart, there is an unbelievable unconditional love and support for these individuals and and they really they did like the yin yang thing that he was the brother was not uh he was very comfortable being behind the scenes you know sometimes you have people that can get um jealous and they want some of the spotlight but bill was very very comfortable being behind the scenes and in, in getting a lot of again heartfelt um energy by supporting his his brother and um sam being able to know that his brother got, got his back allowed him to continue to do what he is so it's like this sacred dance that they have that twin flame relationship is amazing to watch and it's beautiful to see between siblings and do you think that Sam has any message for Bill or do you think that uh, does Sam have any message for humanity at this waking time? 
he just put it in this this sword and i'm seeing a sword being rose up in the air and that means to me that it's time for us to really rise to the occasion to cut through any kind of holding patterns that we're in to really live an empowered life and to live every single moment like it's our last moment he has a lot of love for bill and he also works with him a lot bill it's like he stands behind bill and i'm seeing him it looks like he uh can channel when he's writing bill's writing uh, the book that sam definitely came through and it was like co-authored so they definitely still have that um, connection, those twin flame relationships. You see that a lot, that the person could physically be gone, but their that love connection still keeps them so connected. So he is telling everybody to get up and get to work, like, and not in the human doing this, but really start looking at your life, get back in balance and really bring yourself into live like every single moment's the last. Miss Carrie O'Connor, that was a phenomenal analysis. Thank you. Thank you so much. And to learn more about Miss O'Connor, Please go to our website at kerryoconnor.com. Thank you so much, Kerry. Thank you, Ryan. As always, a pleasure. Joining us now is the angel reader, globally respected second comedian, Miss Laura Lynn, whose website is angelreader.net. Miss Lynn, what can you tell us about the life of Mr. Sam Kinison? Well, he had, he did hold an incredible life. You know, it's he was a very deep thinker. And the things that he thought about, he he made people laugh and bring light about. And it feels like his whole life was about introspection, looking within. Who was he in a previous life? I, I f- feel like he was a back Baptist preacher in the South. And the thing is that that fundamental belief system that he lived through in that past, I feel like he felt very conflicted with in this lifetime where that in-between life stage, he just learned so much. It seemed like he grew a lot in that in-between life stage. And he came back here, I feel like, bringing a different message perhaps, um, make, you know, getting us to look inside. And this time, it feels like he still held some of that deep religious belief, but he wasn't sure how to share it. Do you feel that he fulfilled his true life's purpose in this life incarnation as Sam Kinison as that as a life or did, was there things that he missed out or do you think that he, uh, he he missed some of the marks there well I feel like at this point that he feels like he missed the mark if you will he called sin, he's calling it sin but I think sin it just absolutely represents missing the mark and part of that was steered through some other things that happened to him in another past life with addictions and just going down a road that was really difficult. And part of that is actually going to help him or spearhead him for the future, what he's going to be working on from what I'm capturing or what's being planned in his journey in the future is to help people who work through um, deep despair, deep you know, he's going to bring mercy to these people. He's going to help them. And so he seems to had to go through a depth of despair so he could actually help people in the future. Ms. Laura Lynn, thank you so much for that great analysis of Mr. Sam Kinison. And to learn more about Ms. Laura Lynn, please go to her website at angelreader.net. Thank you so much, Ms. Lynn. Thank you. Joining us now is the astrophenom, our astrologer, Ms. Constance Stellis. A little more about Miss Stellis by going to her website at constantstellis.com. Miss Stellis, what can you tell us 
about Mr. Sam Kennison. Well, rest in peace, Sam. That's the first thing I'd like to say. Um, I read a little bit about his background, and we do not have his birth time, so we have what's called a solar chart, meaning that we just take his birthday and then arrange the wheel of the, the horoscope around that position. He is a, a Sagittarius with a Capricorn moon and a lot of, uh, and two planets, um, Mars and Neptune in Libra, very close together. And then both of those planets are squared by Uranus. Okay, what that all translates into enormous spiritual yearning and desire to transcend and at the same time an explosive personality that <laughs> busted out. Um, I believe that his um, um, uh, early life, he was in a fundamental Christian um, group or some kind of very religious tradition and was a preacher. And that was honest. It wasn't phony for him, but he was searching for something more. The sign of Sagittarius, which is his sun sign, has traditionally been associated with the clergy. So, And I think that that may indicate also um, past lives involved with organized religion. Um, it's also the big-hearted, humor-oriented sign of the zodiac. So once he left the church, he kind of exploded and then imploded. Um, he, um, he, talent, absolutely. His, uh, the screaming and everything else like that, I think was um, real and came from a, a pit of anger that was kind of like if he didn't scream it out, he was just going to detonate. And... Um, Underlying this was a great deal of seriousness, searching, and maybe we can even say depression. But not depression like, okay, take a Prozac, you'll feel better, but a, a, a true um, seeking for what it all means. And he had so many cross currents in his chart that um, it was hard for him to kind of organize himself. And so this eruption of anger and screaming and saying things that at that point, from the interview at least, nobody comically was saying, you know, like, uh, I'd like to kill my ex-wife or whatever. <laughs> I mean, now people have said worse, but he was a bit of a pioneer in that direction. The chart also reveals, even though we don't have the... Um, the birth time, that his life would come to an end uh, suddenly. And uh, I know it was a car accident of a drunk driver, and um, he was a big boozer and um, also involved with drugs. And that was not, you know, everybody goes into substance abuse in a different way, kind of, sort of. And his was more like the exuberance of life and also to calm this, this, this torrent of, of energy that he had. So Uranus in the eighth house, which um, indicates sudden quick death, um, plus some other things, not that simple always, um, it's either at his own uh, behest or it is then acted upon him. So uh, one of the comics said it was just so ironic that nobody would have been 
uh, surprised if he had OD'd or even, God forbid, taken his life or anything like that. But in fact, it came to him from another source. And we can't say he caused it, but the perturbations in his whole kind of um, um, being were so erratic and so jazzed up and so temperamental that he, he, he would have had to work very hard to center himself and corral himself. And I, I, I don't know if he could have done that. And so his fate came to him in the form of a uh, car accident by a drunk driver, I believe. Okay, I want to offer you a, a hypothetical question. Had he not died in that car accident, what do you think the trajectory of the rest of his life could have potentially have been? I, I always have to believe that, but I, I think it would have been such a tough go. I mean, I believe that in theory about everyone. But he he um, he unleashed Pandora's box in his own personality. And finding another avenue of expression other than comedy, if because comedy was beginning to reject him because he was getting too far out there. And uh, I don't think he would go back to uh, religion. You know, if he had been um, in, the, in the accident and severely, um, not paralyzed, but really injured, I think that he would have had uh, an epiphany to put his life together in a different way. But because the soul kind of left... He didn't have that opportunity. Oh. And again, uh, we've heard this question before, but where do you think he may turn up next? And do you think he's reincarnated already? No, 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 no. It doesn't happen that fast. Uh. I think he's 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 cooling his heels, and let's say the the Akashic records, or or you know, he's he's learning some soul lessons to to um, um, separate what is is um, beneficial and uh, positive from what is, you know, screaming memes. Miss <laughs> <laughs> Constance Dallas, the astrophenom. That was a great analysis of Mr. Kennison. And to learn more about Miss Dallas, please go to her website at ConstanceDallas.com. Thank you so much, Miss Dallas. My pleasure. My pleasure. Joining us now for an additional insight on the life of Mr. Sam Kennison is psychic medium and best-selling author, Miss Christy Robinette. To learn more about Miss Robinette, by going to her website at christyrobinette.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-Y-R-O-B-I-N-E-T-T.com. Miss Robinette, what can you tell us about Mr. Sam Kinnison? Sam Kinnison also has an old soul, but with a, um, a new spirit. And he did a really great job in this lifetime with making tracks, you know, that he he definitely was, was going to buck the system and he definitely wasn't going to listen to anybody telling him that he couldn't do this or couldn't do that. And um, what, a, what a revolution, you know, with, with regards to, you know, his spirit. Um, we just recently lost Robin Williams and we just recently lost Joan Rivers. And I can just see the three of them on the other side, their energies, just trying to make everybody laugh and try to make one another laugh even harder. Um, but but Sam had a um, and has a, you know, type of energy that I, I think he was very romantic, you know, and, and people may go, what? 
but I think that he he really wanted love and he really wanted to be loved and that affection, you know, type of energy that he has and that sincerity that he has. And I say that in the present tense because I do not believe that we, you know, we lose that on the other side. Um, that came from one, you know, past life connections too, but with his, his new soul that he sort of brought forward. So, um, like, like I said in, in, um, you know, another segment that we talked about, you know, we have to learn. And unless we learn, we have to do this all over again. And I think that Sam sort of learned through the process of who he was. And he was taken way too early for, you know, many. But really, he, he completed he completed his contract. He completed everything that he was supposed to be complete. He was successful at what he did. And um, and for that, that, that's pretty awesome. He... Okay. They they show go ahead. They show that he you know definitely tried to bring balance and order you know with regards to his business activities, and that he was sort of the director of himself. And they they show that he you know loved family. He wanted to he sort of sacrificed himself you know in the beginning of his lifetime to continue to do what family wanted him to do, so that he sort of stuck around. But he fought through that, and he was still you know, allowed that family to be connected to him. Um, actually, he, he made a great husband. He really did. You know, a, a lot of people, you know, they think of the screaming Sam Kinison, but there is a gentle, calm side, you know, to him. And he would have made a great father, too. And they show that there was two kids that are actually his. And I don't know if, do we know if he has kids? Um, I'm not sure if it's on public record. I'll have to verify. I think he may actually, okay. actually have one child, though. So they, they show me a daughter, and then they show me that there's a son. And the son, to me, feels a little bit younger than the daughter okay. and feels like there's um, not a lot of information about either one of them. Um, but he shows that you know he was never able to sort of be that, that dad. And that is the one thing that I think you know, we, we take our regrets to the other side, and um, I think that that is a regret that he he more than likely does have is that he wasn't able to, to have a nor not that he wanted to be normal, but to have a stable family life, too, and to sort of bring, bring that through, too. He worried about finances. He was a huge worrier, and he just wanted to provide for everybody. And... and- in terms of his evolutionary goals for this life, do you feel that he learned a lot in this life that he was very successful in terms of attaining all the spiritual goals that he had set out? So it was a very successful life. So is his next life maybe something completely different or a whole new set of uh, evolutionary challenges for him? Actually, I think his next life is rock star. Really? So I think I still think that there is a um, you know an entertainment element to it. But is and, and I, I don't think that it's going to lose that he's going to lose that personality, you know, with with regards to him. And I actually think look wise that he is going to look. And I can hear him say on the other side, "Really, I can't be, you know, I can't be, you know, Elvis striking, you know, handsome, really." But um, they show that, you know, look-wise, that there's going to be a similarity with regards to that, too. He has this old soul he did, you know, in this lifetime, and he brought that through, I believe, in his mannerisms, through his soul mannerisms. Is there any particular comedian that he tends to favor in this life, that he's kind of hanging around, that he's kind of guiding? 
<laughs> I think he's haunting every single one, to be perfectly honest. Really? He's like, whoever is going to be hearing me, I am going to be, you know, um, and, and I think he's going to, he's with like the newer comedians, not even with, you know, the older. He's he's trying to sort of channel his, uh, you know, crazy energy into them and whom, whomever might be open, you know, will get it. We don't necessarily have to be reincarnated that person in order to channel that energy. And is he hanging around his brother, Bill? All the time. Uh, yeah, he's his guardian. And well, it's Robin. That was a really uh, great, beautiful analysis. And I want to thank you so much. And to learn more about Christy Robinette, best-selling author and psychic medium, please go to our website at christyrobinette.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-Y, Robinette, R-O-B-I-N-E-T-T.com. Thank you so much for solving it. Joining us now is globally respected psychic medium, Miss Lisa Kaza. You learn more about Miss Lisa Kaza by going to our website at lisakaza.com. Miss Kaza, what can you tell us about the life of Mr. Sam Kinnison? I absolutely adore Sam. He makes me laugh like you wouldn't believe, even even in death. We'll, we'll, we'll come to that in a moment. His career was astoundingly successful. And it's because of one, well, he didn't forget where he had come from. Once again, he had a hard life. He wasn't privileged. And as a result, so he didn't have that inflated ego that you quite often see with other celebrities. He still held uh, a sense of where he had come from. He still held that charitable and loving heart. But two, it's also because he operated from a place of truth. He spoke the truth, his own truth. Um, as a child, as we know, he, he was unfortunately hit by, by a truck and, you know, it, it damaged 30% of his brain and it, and it changed his personality. But it also reawakened um, a different part of his brain, which allowed uh, slight memories of a past life to come through. And this is where things turned, even back then. And this past life that I was shown, it actually took me a little bit of time to, to decipher. But it was in the time of Henry VIII, when Henry VIII was uh, doing the religious reform movement from the Catholic Church. Uh, Henry, I know my, my history, I have to know my, my royal history. Uh, Henry rewrote aspects of, to form a new religion, and he became the head of the Church of England. Now, during this time, they were called, uh, pre these preachers, they were called heretics. And they were prosecuted uh, once they were found out. Anybody that went against Henry VIII, well, you're done for. And I feel that Sam, in that time, in that lifetime, worked against Henry. Uh, he was found out. Um, like, there is, there is this one aspect that Henry VIII always pushed and it was that no one was allowed to for example read the bible unless uh you were an ordained priest like nobody uh no commoner was allowed to read the bible only henry and, and ordained priests or ministers were allowed to have any kind of access to the bible well sam didn't believe in that a lot of the other quote-unquote heretics didn't believe in that either um to make a long story short uh I do feel that Sam was, in fact, in this lifetime, a preacher working against Henry, who was he was found out, and by order of Henry VIII, he he was burned. He was burned. He was burned. He was burned at the stake. 
So it, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, Sam in this lifetime had a, a rather particularly large fear of fire in any form, whether it's, you know, maybe a house burning down or being burned alive, things of that nature. It really wouldn't surprise me because it weighs really heavily in this lifetime. A lot of his beliefs, too, followed him from this from that lifetime to this lifetime. So... Um, that's uh, what's what affected him, and his and his preaching of this lifetime. There's a lot that he didn't believe, so that's what he broke away from. So uh, back to his his unsuccess as a preacher, he was meant to preach, but preach the truth and and knowledge. He just did it in a different way, and with with different messages. So for example, to be yourself, always be honest always uh, have a, a sense of humbleness about you and be charitable and loving and unconditionally loving uh, towards others and have an acceptance. Don't be non-judgmental. Those were his, his underlying messages, believe it or not. What about his relationship with his brother? How has that soul relationship kind of evolved? Is, is he constantly around his brother? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He He's actually around a lot of people. Um, he's around his brother... 24 seven uh his brother just has to simply look and he'll find him there's another person though that i was told to actually make sure that i um relay it on he is also with jim carrey quite often with jim carrey a lot a lot in fact um i'm being told that he has even worked with jim carrey jim carrey may not know this maybe he does because i do know that jim carrey uh, is quite spiritual himself, so he might be aware. But there are four. I was given the na- the title of four different movies that apparently um, Sam had a lot of influence on somehow in some way. And they were Dumb and Dumber, Liar Liar, The Truman Show, and Number Twenty Three in some so, way. Uh, so you're saying that of all the people that are out there in terms of like performers that we're aware of that uh, he's got a very, very close affinity and uh, passion for Jim Carrey? Yes. Definitely. I feel that, that they're actually a lot closer than what I think even his, his Sam's own brother realized. Ms. Lisa Kaza, that was a really great and insightful analysis of Mr. Sam Kinison. Thank you. Thank you so much. And to learn more about Ms. Kaza, please go to her website at lisakaza.com. Thank you so much, Ms. Kaza. Oh, thanks for having me, Ryan. That concludes tonight's edition of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth radio show, OuterLimitsRadio.com. A huge special thanks goes out to Bill Kinnison for agreeing to be interviewed for this program. It was a total honor. Of course, a huge thank goes out to our virtues, Ms. Carrie O'Connor, Ms. Lisa McGarity, Ms. Laura Lynn, Ms. Constance Dallas, and Ms. Lisa Kaza. I also offer Mr. Sam Kinnison, who is in heaven, this message, and I hope he gets it. Dear Sam, the people of Earth remember your career, but I think they need to remember your message even more. I think the world is in great need of people who are passionate about freedom, passionate about life, and passionate about creating a world without all these irrelevant, stupid, and repressive restrictions. Please work with people who can be receptive to your message. I hope that the younger generation who's been inundated with political correctness, mediocrity, and passive aggressiveness rediscover you. Love, Ryan, and the Outer Limits of Inner Truth radio show. For everyone who listened to tonight's program, thank you so much. Till the next time we meet again, my friends, wishing upon you infinite peace, love, and beers. And as we close out tonight's show, we close out with the sounds of Kinnison, courtesy of the Howard Stern Show.
People say, you think Jesus is coming back? <laughs> oh, sure. He's going to be on game shows. He's going to be on This Is Your Life. They're going to go, Jesus, do you remember this noise? Kissing my old friend It's sad that car crash was your end You were so funny and a real great guy You used to make me laugh so hard I'd cry You drink and do drugs that could choke a horse Without remorse Now I miss the sound What are you gonna do, man? You don't have a fucking choice. You have to fuck them. My idea of the perfect date was I wanted to take them out, take them home, I wanted to come on their back, steal $30, $40 out of the purse, fall in a window, and never call them again. Good role model for impressionable you. Champagne and coke both made you nuts, but you had guts. Now I miss the sounds of kissing. You were a bright and shining star. You loved to play your rock guitar. You were so funny every time. Oh, women. You have the pussy. Do you understand that? You have the pussy. It's not the only reason we love you, but it's on the top fucking five, all right? It's right up there. It's on the top five. Don't fucking drink and drive. We like to wear rubbers, guys! was tough. Well, at least I was able to live it out, and I was able to face death and not be afraid, and well, now I'm ready to go to heaven and be with Jesus, and you, hey, hey, what's this? Oh, God, it feels like a man's dick in my ass, oh, God, I did! Oh, you mean life keeps on fucking even after you're dead, oh, it never ends, oh,
The deals are getting hotter during the Deer Days of Summer. Get 0% financing for 60 months on all John Deere compact tractors. Plus, get a best-in-class six-year powertrain warranty at no additional cost. Hurry in today for the hot deals of summer. Offer ends August 2nd, 2016, subject to approved installment credit with John Deere Financial. Terms, conditions, exclusions, and warranty limitations apply. See dealer for details. Visit your local John Deere dealer today to take advantage of special savings going on now. Find out more at myjohndeeredealer.com. 